good news, Maxton, back with your good news. We recorded this episode of One Hit Wonders of the World physically, together, in the flesh. So we took the opportunity to record it on video, which means that you can experience special visual gags and extra language of humor free of charge. Available only at owow.link backslash video uh, and on YouTube, Vimeo, LiveLeak, wherever else videos can be streamed online until we inevitably get shut down by the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Until that day happens, enjoy an hour of Richard Harris talk. Mr. Peter. Yes. We have a tradition here. Which uh, you know because you've listened to every episode of the show. I've listened many times. I have to announce the yes. number of the episodes. Do you remember yeah. what episode we're on? 17? Yeah, we are on episode 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nailed yes. it. Ladies and gentlemen, episode 17. I imagine that's the one we're going to use, but how about you give us one really high energy one? Uh, I'll do one like uh, Richard Harris. Ladies and gentlemen, episode 17. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Family Nights on One Hit Wonders of the World. My name is Maxton Stenstrom. My name is Trevor Ickrath. We're joined together by a very, very special guest, Father Ickrath. Peter Ickrath, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show, Dad. Nepotism here. (laughs) First of all, I can't believe that you listened to this show, and then I can't believe that you agreed to come on. Real quick, I was trying to think about this before we started recording. Do you remember how you like got into the show? Because I can't remember showing it uh, to you sure and being you like. Sent me one. I, I guess. You I did? Can't, I can't remember. I think it we happening. were driving around LA, and then you played it on the radio. Maybe. Very good. Possibly. Very good. That's what I would yeah. imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've been a listener ever since. Ever since. Can uh, we background it a bit? Like I live in New Jersey now. I've, yes. I've, I've been living in LA for the past like five or six years. Yeah. I've moved back in with my dad. Uh, and I actually helped him move yeah, you, back in you with flew today. out. You flew out to Los Angeles from South Carolina. Yep. And we made a cross-country road trip. Yeah, and we're, now we're making a, we're making yeah. another episode of the podcast. This is yeah. episode 17. We're covering MacArthur Park by none other than Richard Harris. For us, girl, it ran one step ahead as we followed in the dance. Mr. Peter, would you happen to remember where you heard? Uh, yeah, over- as a matter of fact, I, I would think I, where I heard many popular songs back in the day. I heard it in my uh, orthodontist chair, <laughs> <laughs> waiting for my uh, braces to dry. So wait, I did. how old were you getting braces? Uh, I must have been like 10 years old. They had braces in the 60s? They had braces back when dinosaurs ruled the earth. (laughs) I used to stare at a wall full of uh, plaster cast teeth, hundreds of teeth, listening to this music. I empathize with you as somebody who had to have braces three times. It, Uh, it It is a truly horrific experience, and I wouldn't wish it on my enemies. But you heard... Uh, the song MacArthur Park while you were in the orthodontist chair, when you were, you know, a sub 10 year old, were you aware of Richard Harris at all? Not as the actor, no. I knew of uh, Camelot. 
Okay. Movie. Okay. It was very huge back in the 60s, so probably knew him from that. I actually thought he was a singer. And I actually cool. took me a while to took me a while to figure out it was the same guy. Nice! We thought it was just two guys that happened to be named Richard Harris. Harris. Love that. This has got to be one of the worst songs that I could think of to come on while you're having some kind of like oral oh, surgery. Not at all. <laughs> I mean, just it goes on and on and on. I'd be, I just can picture myself strapped in that chair, being like, "Geez, it feels like I'm here forever." As a child, as a kid, getting some braces. Were you into this song, or were you like, "Man, I wish this shit." I wasn't into right any now. kind of uh, popular music back then as a ten-year-old. I just wasn't into it. But um, you know, I just, I just remember this one. This okay. Is a, this is a very memorable song. Very memorable. Let's jump to you, Trevor. Where did you first hear of Richard Harris? Was it from your dad sitting right next to me? I mean, I, I guess. I didn't know who Richard Harris was until, like, we decided to do this episode. <laughs> I, wow, I, another one, huh? Long before I was familiar with MacArthur Park, I heard the Weird Al Yankovic parody of it. Yes! Jurassic Ooh. Park. I have a very specific memory of hearing that one for the first time. It was when I went to go see Weird Al Yankovic as a little boy. Nice! Uh, I went to go see him in Red Bank, New Jersey, I think, at like the Count Basie Theater or something. And he performed this song, and uh, like all the songs he performed that night, he had a visual company for it. And it was like, uh, it was a bunch of like footage of dinosaur stuff. And one, a, a very distinct memory I have, probably my first memory of going to a concert. Wow. Is sitting in this theater watching Weird Al Yankovic perform Jurassic Park and watching his visuals. And at one point in the visuals, uh, there was a sequence in which Barney the dinosaur was devoured by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Very good. And when this happened, the guy sitting next to me, better than that, the guy sitting next to me, who was inexplicably some kind of Hell's Angel biker dude, jumped to his feet out of his chair and just cheered, yeah! And I was like, what is, th even as like a little 10 year old boy, I was like, what is this guy doing at a Weird Al Yankovic concert? I, I guess it really just does speak to, you know, the wide reach that Mr. Yankovic yeah. has. I only had heard of the song because a friend of the show, Dylan, was like, yo, Richard Harris is a one-hit wonder. You could get Trevor's dad on for that. And I was like, who yeah, is that? The old what man, is that the song? Old man. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't have me for that 2025 thing. Same year as 2025. Is it the same year? Yeah, 1968. Uh, though this only got to number two. Weird that year for the radio. Yeah. 1968. Very strange. Yeah. yeah. Let's take a trip back to 1968 and explore the legacy of once very famous person, Richard Harris. Trevor, you wanna start it off? Sure, let's let's talk about where this guy comes from. He was he was born in the city of Limerick, which feels kind of appropriate, you know? <laughs> the, the name of like a weird little kind of po poem for this weird actor, singer dude. It is weird, He yeah. was one of eight children in his family. Mm. He was the son of a local flour mill owner. Yeah, they come from tough backgrounds. These yeah, guys. yeah, working class. Huh. His business later fell on hard times, and uh, in, in Richard's youth, he was a talented rugby player, but at age 22, he was struck down by tuberculosis. Sounds like he really got into literature while he was sick and recovering from his illness. Sure. And during that time, he decided that he wanted to become a theater director. He wasn't really able to like find a viable path as a theater director. He did end up uh, studying acting at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. Uh, he wasn't super successful at it initially, so he ended up like sleeping in a coal cellar for a while, it sounds like. Come up. A coal cellar being, you know, the room where coal delivery trucks once dumped fuel brigades for residential heating. I heard that's very good heating. for tuberculosis. Yeah. 
He spent nearly a decade in obscurity learning his profession on the stages throughout the UK. Just showing up at all these auditions probably covered in black soot and stuff. He eventually found some success on the London stage in the late 1950s. He soon came to be considered one of Britain's new angry young men, along with uh, other such actors as Albert Finney and uh, Peter O'Toole. Made his film debut in 1959 in the film Alive and Kicking and would go on to be a part of two more films released before the end of the year. Very prolific guy, Richard Harris. He also started the film Mutiny on the Bounty in 1962. Ah, with Marlon Brando, that's right. Yeah, and actually, he reportedly insisted on third billing behind Marlon Brando, an actor he greatly admired. But Richard Harris fell out with Marlon Brando over the latter's behavior during the film's production. Do you know he was very bad, yeah. Marlon Brando cost him a lot of money with lighting and everything, and just he was a pain in the neck. And his performance threw the whole movie off balance because he played him as a fop. A real dandy. That little background of Richard Harris's in which he lived in a coal mining delivery room or whatever quickly paid off. In 1963, he starred in a little film called This Sporting Life. Oh, yeah. As a bitter young coal miner. Yes. Not only did he play a coal miner, but the coal miner in question became an acclaimed rugby league football player. Did this guy just write this film based on Richard Harris's life? I mean, it wouldn't surprise me considering all these coincidences. For this role, he won Best Actor in 1963 at the Cannes Film Festival, mm. and he got an Academy Award nomination. So like right out the gate, yeah. Richard Harris is starting his career with some big highs. He struggled a little bit before he broke through, but once he broke through, you know, he was really the talk of the town, it sounds like. Yeah, after that, he got pretty big really fast. It's true, the 1960s saw him becoming an international star at a time when it was fashionable to cast British actors in Italian films uh, filmmaker Michelangelo mm. uh, filmmaker Michelangelo anti uh, Antonio 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 Michelangelo Antonioni got him to play Monica Vitti's lover in The Red Desert Harris, dubbed in a drift in one of his rare introspective roles, hated making the film. But he really enjoyed playing the character Captain Tyreen, a flamboyant and ambivalent Confederate prisoner in Sam Peckinpah's movie Major Dundee. Oh, Charlton Heston. Yes, and he clashed with Charlton Heston on and off the screen. Heston recalled that Harris was, quote unquote, very much the professional Irishman and an occasional pain in the posterior. <sighs> Richard Harris thought his co-star was so square. It sounds like Richard Harris was quite the hip dude. Like really the film that he's like come to be known for in a way. He performed the role of King Arthur yes. in a Warner Brothers film adaptation of the musical play Camelot. Critic Roger Ebert described the casting of Richard Harris and Vanessa Redgrave as, quote, about the best King Arthur and Queen Guinevere I can imagine, though the finished product was generally deemed a travesty by most critics. Hmm. But Richard Harris was smart. He acquired the performance rights to it, which allowed him to live off royalty income for many, many years. That really? sounds tight. That's what, exactly what I would have done in that situation. You ever see any Camel? Like, you ever, I, I don't think you've seen the movie. I saw the play, actually, when I was in high school. Oh, I saw the movie. Very uh, 1960s musical. As directed by Joshua Logan, the movie was monumentally long and sluggish, but Richard proved an electrifying presence. The soundtrack on Warner Brothers actually remained in print for decades and was more profitable than the movie itself. And so this kind of brings up to Richard Harris, the musical artist. Mm -hmm. And also brings us to What Went Right! Ba, 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 ba. Here we are. 
Now, we also get to talk about another figure who is equally important in the making of the song. Oh yeah. Jimmy Webb. McGarry the Park was written and composed by Jimmy Webb in the summer and fall of 1967 as part of an intended cantata. What can it, you tell me about Jimmy Webb? Uh, uh, uh Jimmy First Webb. First of all, what's a cantata? Uh, I was just about to tell you. Okay. A cantata, just so you know, is a medium-length narrative piece of music for voices with instrumental accompaniment, typically with solos, chorus, and orchestra. I would say if I'm a guy who, you know, has a background in acting and and decides he wants to kind of try and break into music, the first thing I'd want to try is something as, you know, challenging as that. <laughs> like, yeah. really jump right into the deep end, you know? Let's talk a little more about Jimmy Webb. He was born in 1946 in Elk City, Oklahoma. Uh, his father was a Baptist minister and an alumni of the Marines, who presided over rural churches in southwest Oklahoma and west Texas. With his mother's encouragement, Jimmy learned the piano and organ, and by the age of 12, he was playing in the choir of his father's churches, mm -hmm. accompanied by his father on guitar and his mother on accordion. The family band! That's a pretty pretty fun arrangement. The house that he grew up in was super conservative, super religious, to the point where his dad restricted radio listening to just country music and white gospel. Yeah, mm. so during the late 1950s, Jimmy Webb began applying his creativity to the music he was playing at his father's church, uh, frequently improvising and rearranging the hymns. Kind of getting jiggy with it. Yeah, during that time he began to write religious songs, but his musical direction was soon influenced by the new music being played on the radio, including the music of one Elvis Presley. In 1964, Jimmy and his family moved to Southern California, where he attended the San Bernardino College, studying music. Following the death of his mother in 1965, his father made plans to return to Oklahoma, but Webb decided to stay in California to continue his music studies and to pursue a career as a songwriter in Los Angeles. He would later recall his father warning him about his musical aspirations, saying, This songwriting thing's gonna break your heart. Seeing that his son was determined, though, he gave him $40, saying, It's not much, but it's all I have. And yes, I did look up what $40 in 1965 is worth today. That is $330. Still not that much. Enough to start a recording career, I would say. I guess. I mean, how much could one song cost to record? $20? So after getting that uh, loan from his dad, he started out transcribing other people's music for a small music publisher in Hollywood. But after that, he was uh, signed to a songwriting contract with Yobe Music, the publishing arm of Motown Records, which you may have heard of. The first commercial recording of a Jimmy Webb song was My Christmas Tree by the Supremes, which appeared on their 1965 Merry Christmas album. Then that following year, he met singer and producer Johnny Rivers, who signed him wow. to a publishing deal and recorded his song By the Time I Get to Phoenix on his 1966 album, Ooh, that Changes. Was his? Yeah. In 1967, uh, Johnny Rivers actually returned to Jimmy Webb for material for a new group he was producing called The Fifth Dimension. Jimmy mm. Webb contributed five songs to their debut album, up, Up, and Away, including the title track, Up, Up, and Away, which was released as a single in May 1967, and it reached the top ten on the Billboard charts. Let's give a listen to Up, Up, and Away by The Fifth Dimension. In my beautiful balloon. Just kind of skip to the fourth one there, huh? Would you like to ride in my beautiful would you like to ride in my beautiful balloon? We could float among the stars together, you and I. Oh, we can fly. We can fly. 
already, I feel like you can kind of pin down some things that Jimmy Webb likes to do in his compositions. A kind of sound for the songwriter, very quickly. I'm just picturing a scene in like a Jimmy Webb musical biopic in which, you know, there's always a scene where they take the song to like the agent or the head of the record label and he shoots it down. Mm -hmm. I just picture some, you know, sweaty guy behind a desk going like, Song about a balloon ride will never be a hit. People don't want to hear songs about going on a balloon ride. Write me a song about a plane. I find it interesting that Jimmy Webb, like, though he came from this, like, super hyper-conservative background to the point where his dad wouldn't even, like, let him listen to black gospel, immediately got his start, like, Motown, black artist, like, jumping into that world. It seemed like he didn't have any kind of reservations on working with artists of color in the 60s as other composers may have. Maybe he was just rebelling against his dad. There Maybe he was. So in November 1967, Glenn Campbell released his version of By the Time I Get to Phoenix, which reached number 26 on That's the Hot 100. Yeah, I would think that had gone to number one. At the 1968 Grammy Awards, Up, Up, and Away, and By the Time I Get to Phoenix received eight Grammy Awards between them, including Up, Up, and Away being named Record of the Year and Song of the Year for 1967. Yeah, I just think about, you know, a group getting eight Grammy Awards and I don't even have one. Dude, you know? share your fucking Grammys. Okay. Come on, I'm coming to your house. I want some Grammys. Do you need all eight of those? Really? <laughs> Spread the love. Webb's success as a new songwriter underscored what became the central dilemma in his career, really. Uh, while his sophisticated melodies and orchestrations were embraced by mainstream audiences, his peers were embracing counterculture sounds. Webb was quickly becoming out of sync with his times. And that might explain why when he brought the MacArthur Park Cantata to Sunshine Pop Group, The Association, they just shot that shit down. I mean, I feel like there are tons of different reasons why a band would shoot down a song like MacArthur Park. <laughs> is this where we want to talk about how weird this song is? When are we going to do that? This song is like a seven and a half minute psychedelic rumination on this breakup. I want to go through the lyrics here because they're very, like, evocative. They're a point of contention for a lot of people listening to this song. A lot of people heard the lyrics to this and got really upset. But you know, there's something you brought up that I didn't even know, that it was part of that cantata or whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. I wonder what this was obviously part of a bigger story. Some would argue that they might have expanded on it a little bit in Richard Harris's full album, A Tramp Shining. You and I listened to that entire album yeah. in preparation for this episode, and I, I don't think it really made an impression. Like, all the other songs on the album, first of all, the album was, what, like, 35 minutes long? Yeah, the yeah. whole fifth of that album yeah. is MacArthur's part. Sounds like yeah. a cash grab. Let's talk about these lyrics, because they're weird! All right, yeah. let's, let's read. Spring was never waiting for us, girl. It ran one step ahead as we followed in the dance. Between the parted pages and were pressed in love's hot fevered iron like a striped pair of pants. Okay, pause. The fuck? I don't know, man. A uh, striped pair of pants was very fashionable back then. Okay. okay. And then you got that chorus. MacArthur's Park is melting in the dark. All the sweet green icing flowing down. Someone left the cake out in the rain. Why would you do that? I don't think that I can take it because it took so long to bake it and I'll never have that recipe again. I think oh, that's, no! Uh, I think that's the fading of a memory. We should say, this is a breakup song. It's yes. about Jimmy Webb's breakup from... With Susan Horton, a talented singer who never found much commercial success. And it sounds like over the course of their relationship, they spent a lot of time together hanging out in MacArthur Park. And maybe and, baking. And a lot of the lyrics in this song were based on things that Jimmy Webb just saw around the park while they were hanging out including, I'm pretty sure, 
a cake melting in the rain? Let's keep going with these lyrics. I recall the yellow cotton dress foaming like a wave on the ground around your knees. The birds like tender babies in your hands, and the old men playing checkers by the trees. Oh, Chorus again. Yeah. Uh, then we get to the second part of the song. There will be another song for me, for I will sing it. There will be another dream for me. Someone will bring it. I will drink the wine while it is warm and never let you catch me looking at the sun. And after all the loves of my life, after all the loves of my life, you'll still be the one. I will take my life into my hands and I will use it. I will win the worship in your eyes and I will lose it. I will have the things that I desire and my passion flow like rivers through the sky. And after all the loves of my life, oh, after all the loves of my life, I'll be thinking of you and wondering why. To quote Blades of Glory, no, no one, one knows, knows what it means, but it's evocative. It really is evocative, and I think that is definitely, you know, one of the big reasons why this was such a hit. We have some quotes from Jimmy Webb here talking about the making of this song. He said, everything in the song was visible. There's nothing in it that's fabricated. The old men playing checkers by the trees. The cake that was left out in the rain. All the things that are talked about in the song are things that I actually saw. So it's kind of like a musical collage of this whole love affair that went down in MacArthur Park. Back then, I was kind of like an emotional machine. Like whatever was going on inside me would bubble out of the piano and onto paper. I, I wish I'd let you read that quote before I kind of uh, half paraphrased it like a few seconds ago. <laughs> Jimmy Webb and Susie Horton remained friends even after her marriage to another man. Good for them. In my experience, that doesn't really work, but no. hey, good for them. That will kind of come back in a pretty interesting way later. After his breakup, Jimmy stayed for a while at the residence of Buddy Greco, upon whose piano the piece was composed and originally dedicated. Greco closed all of his shows with this number for 40 years. I feel like that get kind of old, especially if you're like a real Greco head. <laughs> Who like goes to every show? I mean, like you, know, you, you could, gotta play to hit. Right? You could be headed for the door like after the second or last show, because like I already know what he's closing with. The idea to write and compose a classically structured song with several movements that could be played on the radio came from a challenge by music producer Bones Howe, who produced recordings for the association. The song begins as a poem about love, then moves into a lover's lament, and the song consists of four movements: a mid-tempo introduction and an opening section called "In the Park" in the original session notes is built around piano and harpsichord with horns and orchestra added. This arrangement accompanies the song's main verses and choruses. After that, there's the second movement, which is a slow tempo and quiet section uh, called After the Loves of My Life. Which brings you to the third section, my favorite part, the part I needle drop at the end of the last episode, an up-tempo instrumental bit, the allegro section, led by drums and percussion, punctuated by horn riffs, building to an orchestral climax. Always kind of reminds me of the up-tempo part of uh, Live and Let Die by Paul McCartney. A Here little is. bit! Bump, 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 yeah. yeah. And then there's the fourth and final movement, which is a mid-tempo reprise of the first section uh, that concludes with the final choruses and the climax. Jimmy Webb delivered MacArthur Park to Bones Howe with quote-unquote everything he wanted. But Howe did not care for the ambitious arrangement and unorthodox lyrics, and the song was rejected by the group The Association, for whom it was originally intended. This doesn't make a lot of sense to me, because it sounds like the dude was like, hey, could you write me a really complex song that doesn't really make a lot of sense and is <laughs> really overblown? And Jimmy was like, yeah, here. And he's like, what? Is, this is a huge overblown song with tons of weird arrangements. And this that is for the really association, that group? They're terrible. I can't even believe you'd even submit it to them because they don't have the vocal chops for You don't this. think they would have done it justice? No. Shame we'll never know. So, MacArthur Park was first recorded by Richard Harris after he met the composer at a fundraiser in East Los Angeles in late 67. Jimmy had been invited to provide the musical backdrop of the piano. 
Out of the blue, Harris, who had just starred in Camelot and performed several musical numbers in it, suggested to Webb that he wanted to release a record. At first, Jimmy did not take him seriously, but later he received a telegram from Harris. Quoting Jimmy Webb here, he says, It was the late 1960s and I was doing music for an anti-war pageant with some Hollywood stars, including Mia Farrow and Edgar G. Robinson. Richard Harris and I started hanging out after rehearsals and drinking Black Velvets, 50% Guinness, 50% Champagne. One night after a few Black Velvets, I said, we ought to make a record. <laughs> he starred in the movie Camelot and sang every song in it beautifully. And then a few weeks later, I received a telegram that said, Dear Jimmy Webb, come to London. Make this record. Love, Richard. Man, a few words. <laughs> uh, except, I guess, now when recording very long seven and a half minutes in the Odysseys. <laughs> Jimmy Webb said, I got a flight and stayed with Richard in Belgravia. Over the course of two days, we tore through 30 or 40 of my songs. I was playing the piano and singing. He was standing there in his coffin, waving his arms and expressing excitement at some songs. Not so crazy about the others. The best went into his debut album, A Tramp Shining. MacArthur Park was at the bottom of my pile. By the time I played it, we had moved on to straight brandy. But Richard slapped the piano and said, Oh, Jimmy Webb, I love that. I'll make a hit out of that, I will. Why does he, do you think he exclusively referred to Jimmy Webb by both of his names? <laughs> hey, my good friend Jimmy Webb, do you want to come record this album, Jimmy Webb? Let's write some songs, Jimmy Webb. I can confirm that because I cut a bit from the notes where Jimmy Webb says, He always called me Jimmy Webb. He's great. <laughs> The track was recorded on December 21st, uh, 1967, at Armin Sand Recorders in Hollywood. String Woodman and Brass Overdubs were recorded over two sessions on December 29th and 30th. How the fuck do we know when this song was recorded? Well, we have a quote from Jimmy Webb in which he says, I recorded the basic track back in Hollywood oh. with myself on harpsichord, accompanied by session musicians, the Wrecking Crew. They're famous! They are, they the work on uh, Pet Sounds and a couple other Beach Boys recordings, yes. I believe. He says, we rehearsed it a few times, then played it right through, using the first take and adding the orchestra painstakingly later. <laughs> Jimmy Webb continues, when Richard did the vocals at a London studio, we had a pitcher of pims by the microphone. Author's note, I love how into detail Jimmy Webb goes about what they were drinking when they made the song. We knew the session was over when the Pims was gone. Never could get him to sing the title correctly. He'd say, Jimmy Webb, I've got it. Then he'd sing, Mikaafis Park. It was wonderful to hear him growing in confidence. At one point he said, I think the vocals are a little loud. We need more orchestra. A few months later he was saying, Jimmy Webb, the damn orchestra's too loud. He'd gone from wanting to hide his voice to wanting people to hear it. His voice, you know, to his credit, his voice sounds really good on it. Those high notes he hits during like the climax, consistently blow me away every time. Jimmy Webb says, At first, we felt like the guys who created the A-bomb. <laughs> That's, that feels like a bit of a reach. We were a bit afraid of what we'd done. <laughs> I didn't know I could write something like that. We had doubts about releasing it as a single, but when radio stations began playing it from the album in its entirety, I was asked to do a shorter version as a single. I refused. So eventually they put out the full 7 minutes, 20 seconds. And now, this. George Martin once told me the Beatles let Hey Jude run over seven minutes because of MacArthur Park. That's nuts. I had no idea. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. The Makes impact. Sense. Yeah. Like, that's Timing crazy. Right. Yeah. So MacArthur Park was released in April 1968. It made its way into the Hot 100 at number 79 on May 11th. It peaked at number two on June 22nd. It shattered AM Radio's established prohibition against playing singles of greater than three and a half minutes length. So that's pretty cool. Bruce Eater for all music rights, the accompanying album A Tramp Shining was one of the great pop LPs of the 60s? 
a sophisticated and extraordinarily well-produced concept album, which owed a considerable debt to Sgt. Pepper's? I wonder if I could really get into this record if I just kind of listened to it over the course of a week or something. Let's talk about the record one more time. It's not... A concept album? A lot of the songs just felt really slight. There were some lyrics that stuck out. I think the second song on the album, one of the refrains is Richard Harris singing about this woman who married quote-unquote some guy. She was married to some guy. Yeah. Which is, that's pretty funny. But I, concept album? Sgt. Pepper's? Uh, 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 Bruce Eater for all music? The fuck are you talking about? Harris continued working in movies, although he never did another musical along the lines of Camelot, despite MacArthur Park's success. We'll figure out why soon. But he also found himself in demand as a recording artist, too. He did a second album with Webb writing and producing, which was called The Yard Went On Forever. Mr. Peter, have you heard this before? No, I thought he just lost interest in music after this. No, he made a shitload of LPs. Did let's, he really? Yeah. Let's listen to The Yard Went On Forever by Richard Harris, written by Jimmy Webb. You thought MacArthur Park was weird? Is everybody warm inside? Is them singing? Not a bad drop. Not too bad. All the women of Pompeii standing with the Kansas City housewives. On Doomsday. What the fuck? There's that thing again. Hey, you gotta play the hits. Alright, so I need your reaction. Hold on. Put them on. That's about a minute and a half of Richard Harris's The Yard Went On Forever. So my immediate reaction is, uh, I don't like that as much as MacArthur Park. How could you? But I do think it's better than anything else I remember on uh, A Tramp Shining. Yeah, I guess they saved one more good one for the next album. How did you feel about that, Mr. Peter? Sound like a lift from the, uh, the hit they already had. That is... I feel like a big theme that keeps reoccurring with the songwriting of Jimmy Webb, at least the stuff from him that I pulled for this episode. He, he likes, likes to stick with what works. works. Yeah. yeah, he has his sound, and he likes his sound, and he doesn't want to really touch his sound too much if he doesn't have to. Yeah. In his review on All Music, Bruce Ader uh, praised that record, writing that the lyrics are dazzling and they're cascading imagery. The music is richer and more vividly conceived and recorded, and the entire album works magnificently. Bruce, we're just going to have to take your word for it, because I'm not listening to it. His subsequent records include My Boy and the Richard Harris Love Album. Well into the early 70s, three years after it had been on the charts, Harris was still prevailed upon to perform MacArthur Park during his talk show appearances. Do you know what that is? That's the that's the sign that you're a one-hit wonder. Yeah. That's the sign. Shut up and play the hits? Yeah, shut up and play the hits. His movie career was doing pretty good in the early 70s. I can't believe he even had time for this. Can I read this next bullet from the notes because it amuses 
confuses me. He also recorded a spoken word album of his reading of poet Carl Gibbons the Prophet, along with an audiobook version of Richard Bach's best-selling novella, Jonathan Livingston Siegel, which earned him a Grammy Award for Best Spoken Word Recording in 1973. Are you familiar with the novella? That was kind of a big thing in the 70s, well, wasn't huge. it, Jonathan Livingston? For some reason, I, I read it when I was a kid. It's a weird little what book. Is it? I think it's, they made a movie out of it. It's a book from the perspective of a seagull. I think they actually made a movie. And it's very, like, deep and very philosophical people were like reading this book and like yeah, it was changing bizarre. their lives in the 70s yeah. this book about a seagull you can win a grammy for an audiobook that, i mean there's no reason why you can win a grammy for an audiobook and you can't win a grammy for a podcast these days i don't see why it's not a thing yet academy for your consideration one hit wonders of the world in the new category that we invented best podcast it's gotta happen sooner or later fans of richard harris consider his role as an english toff seized by the sioux in the 1970 film a man called horse is one of his best and his career nadir to be orca a 1977 ocean thriller that cast him alongside Charlotte Rampling and a poorly disguised animatronic killer whale. So we got Jonathan Siegel, we got a man called Horse, and we got <laughs> and we got an orca. What's with what's with this animal theme? Around the late 70s is where we really get into what went wrong with Horses. For much of the 70s, Harris was as visible as he was risible. He says, I consider a great part of my career a total failure. Me too. <laughs> he said, I went after the wrong thing. Me I got, too. I got caught in the 60s. Me too? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I picked pictures that were way below my talent just to have fun. So he intentionally torpedoed his career because he wanted to have fun. You kind of got to respect it. Speaking of things you got to respect, as the decade progressed, he earned a reputation as a heavy drinker. Oh, yeah. And it was said that the shooting schedules for his films usually had to be extended by at least a week <laughs> to account for the days he would be unable to work. The Harris bump. Speaking of bumps, he later admitted to cocaine abuse and claimed to have once tossed thousands of dollars worth of it down the toilet in an attempt to break the habit. Sounds like Scott Storch could have taken a page out of Richard Harris's book. Twice he almost died. Holy shit! And had been given last rites, the Roman Catholic sacrament for those near deaths but he eventually curbed his substance abuse habits to an occasional pint of Guinness. Who among us doesn't enjoy an occocasional pint of Guinness? Who among us hasn't flushed thousands of dollars of cocaine down the toilet? I mean, not me, but I'm sure I'll get there at some point. For a while in the 80s, Richard Harris went into semi-retirement on Paradise Island in the Bahamas, where he kicked his drinking habit and embraced healthier lifestyle. Good for him. He spent years recovering his health on a strict dietary regimen, and he also rediscovered religion in the process and pursued a writing career, publishing poetry and a novel. Television interviews with Richard Harris usually contained a colorful story or two, and he was frank about his disdain for acting as a profession. He said, if anyone ever asks my advice, I tell them, don't take yourself too seriously. Good advice, Richard. Harris also enjoyed a reposte-laden, years-long war of words with actor Michael Caine. He said of Michael Caine, he makes films you wouldn't rent on video. Got him. And Michael Caine liked to assert that Richard Harris and Richard Burton had squandered their own thespian talents in the bottle. Yeah, both true. <laughs> Richard Harris only acted in nine films in the 80s. This indicated declining popularity, which Harris told his biographer he was 
utterly reconciled to. So, you know, things are going wrong, but he still is a fucking biographer. So, like, how wrong could it really be going? And as long as he's utterly reconciled with how wrong things have been going, we might as well get into what came next. Let's finish up the saga of Jimmy Webb. Jimmy Webb said, I always knew the girl who inspired the song would hear and know what it meant. A long time after I had written it, I found out that she had moved to Lake Tahoe and become a dancer. When I came into significant money, I hired a Learjet, flew up there, and I said, I'm not going back without you. We lived together for three years, and then it turned into a soap opera. Uh, Jimmy Webb... I'm not going back without you is a soap opera line. Uh, later in Richard Harris's career, though, he enjoyed a bit of a revival, taking parts that cast him in the wise elder statesman role. He made an indelible impression as the dandified killer English Bob in Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven in 1992. That's right. And he also appeared in Ridley Scott's Gladiator as Marcus Aurelius. Gladiator was 2000 or something. Yes, like two years before he would pass away. What's that, what's that famous quote from Gladiator? Uh... You guys like this? No, it's, uh, are you entertained? Are you not Are you not entertained? Basically what I said. Then he ended up taking a role that he only took because his granddaughter said she would never speak to him again if he turned it down. What role was that? Uh, that was the role of a guy named Albus Dumbledore in the Harry Potter series. Well, indie series. Richard Harris actually committed himself to doing all seven of the films based on J.K. Rowling's books. Sounds like he was a little fickle about it. He said, I'll keep doing it as long as I enjoy it, my health holds out and they still want me, but the chances of all three of those factors remaining constant are pretty slim. And it didn't happen. Yeah, his health would only hold on long enough for him to appear in the first two movies of the series. Despite enjoying his renaissance as one of cinema's grand old men, Richard Harris reflected, I'm not interested in reputation or immortality or things like that. I don't care if I'm remembered. I don't care why I'm remembered. I genuinely don't. You gotta respect it. Apathy. It's something I aspire to in everything I do. Richard Harris did not give a f And in 2013, he was honored by a new annual film festival which takes place in his hometown of Limerick, Ireland. The Richard Harris International Film Festival! Good for him. I think that that is the shortest amount of time we've covered a biography in the show in some episodes. Solid work, I would say. That is the story of Jimmy Webb, Richard Harris, and MacArthur Park. Really the story of a guy who cared too much and a guy who didn't care at all. <laughs> there you go. Let's talk about some covers though. Like this is maybe the like most respectable cover section yeah. that we've ever included in an episode. Slash the cover section that I had to do the least amount of work to put together. Yeah. Let's, Let's talk, talk about this first cover version we have. Country music singer Waylon Jennings version from his album Country Folk featuring family group The Kimberleys. This version won both acts a Grammy Award for Best Country Performance by Duo or Group with Vogel. So Richard Harris didn't win a Grammy for this song, but these guys won a Grammy for the cover. Yeah! Okay, alright, let's listen to this. That's I haven't heard works. this one. Spring was never waiting for us, girl It ran one step ahead As we followed in the dance It's so like summer! Yeah, a little too dreary for me so far. Sure. Father's spark is melting like that. Now we're talking. All the sweet green icing flowing down Good harmony! Someone 
Let the cake out in the rain. Well, it is country western now. Yeah. Jennings and the Kimberleys. That was a solid cover, but like this doesn't scream like Grammy material to me. No. No. Guy doesn't have the vocal chops. Not at all. You wonder if these guys have the vocal chops. The Four Tops! I would imagine. Was this a hit? This actually did hit number 38 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. So here is another hit by the Four Tops, their cover. Okay, Carl, just part. Okay. Was never waiting for us, girl. It ran one step ahead as we followed in a dance. Oh, this is kind of funky. My coffee pot is melting in the dark. All the sweet green icing flowing down. Someone left the cake out in the rain. I don't think that I can take it. And these guys can't play vocals. Yeah. Yeah, oh my god. And I'll never have that recipe again. Nailed it. Oh no. There it is, though. He can do the high note. That's the four tops, though. I think they had the most hit singles of anybody, right? They had a lot of hits. But this actually isn't the artist we're going to talk about with the most hits. That's our next cover yeah. by Donna Summer. We actually have a little background on this one. Yeah, because this was a big hit. Actually, was... that's probably what made the song more famous and gave it its lasting than anything else. Italian producer Giorgio Moroder had been interested in the concept of either remixing a track, which had been a hit in the 60s, or else remaking a 1960s hit as a dance track. Can I read this Giorgio Moroder quote? Because yeah. I, like, I've been reading it in the same voice that he uses at the beginning of that Daft Punk track that yeah. he's on. Yeah. yeah. I remember that I was driving in on the Hollywood freeway and I heard the original song on the radio. I thought, that's it. That's the song we've been looking for for almost a year. It was perfect for her. First I located a key that she could sing really high, but still with a big voice. That took an hour or two. I played a little piano and she sang it with my accompaniment. And then I did something very special. Now something very special would be Marona's recording with his own voice to form a choir heard behind Donna Summer on the song's chorus. That's pretty cool. I didn't know he sang on it. That's yeah, neat. Yeah, he sang. Summer's recording of this song was included as part of what became known as the MacArthur Park Suite on uh, her double album Live and More, which was 8 minutes and 40 seconds long. You need all those? We listened to the song, and in my opinion, yeah, she did. But the shorter 7-inch single version of the song, that afforded Donna Summer her first number one hit on the Billboard Hot 100. Huh. Also, it, it also became the last of seven hit versions of compositions by Jimmy Webb to reach the top 10 on the Hot 100. With MacArthur Park by Donna Summer being the only Webb composition to top the Hot 100. To reach number one. And with this song, Donna Summer became the first female artist of the modern era to have the number one single and album simultaneously on the Billboard pop charts during the week of November 11th, 1978. Good for her. And let's give a listen to Donna Summer's MacArthur Park. This is like the proper aplomb, she's not going hella operatic, it's being appropriately communicated here. 
this is the definitive version of MacArthur Park. There's Giorgio! That's him? He sounds angelic! that shit inside. They really take to bake a cake. Oh my god. Oh my god, listen to that high note. And now Pew is back that we, oh, yeah. that we first became familiar with on Anita Ward's Ring My Bell. Woo! Although, you know, whereas that song overused it, I think Giorgio deploys it the perfect town. Very nice. Listen to that synthesizer! The sound is the future. Of the future. Yeah, this this slaps. Party foul. And then she nails the nose. Here it comes. Here it comes. Fucking amazing, dude. Now we go all the way to the fifth dimension. Yeah, this was a great collaboration of uh, musical geniuses at the time. I agree. They had quite a few hits together, her and Giorgio, didn't yeah. they? I really attribute the song being that popular because of that particular version. I think it probably would have gone into obscurity had it not been. For Let's that. listen to another version that inarguably contributed to this song's legendary status. The parody of it by Weird Al Yankovic. Jurassic Park. One of his classic songs in which he really just kind of describes the plot of a movie. I recall the time they found those fossilized mosquitoes and before long <laughs> Why does this work so well? Because right, Weird Al is a genius. Yeah, he is. Now I'm being chased by some irate velociraptors. Well, believe me, this has been one lousy day. Jurassic Park is frightening in the dark. All the dinosaurs are do that high notes. He nails it. We have one last cover to listen to. This is a version by the person who originally composed the song, Jimmy Webb, featuring Brian Wilson of the Ooh. Beach Boys? Yeah, that doesn't I mean, sound like a good idea. Here is Jimmy Webb featuring Brian Wilson with the 2013 version of MacArthur Park. I like that guitar tone. 
But the park is melting in the dark. All the sweetness of all. Okay. Flowing down. I mean, hey, they can't all be the Donna Summer's cover. No. Cake out in the rain. I don't think that I could take it. Cause it took so long to bake it in. I'll never have that recipe. It's 2013. And that's Jimmy Webb with help from Brian Wilson performing his hit, MacArthur Park. Yeah, definitely a songwriter singing. I swear that is the shortest that we've done an episode in like a year. Well, it's not a react because now we got to do what we do at the end of every episode of One Hit Wonders of the World. Talk about our attributes. Oh, yes. We have some attributes for you. Did you know that at the end of every episode of One Hit Wonders of the World, we make attributes for the song that we've just spent an hour talking about? We rank these attributes on any scale that we so desire, as long as it is the same scale per episode. Just, just a peek by McCurdy, Dad. My favorite part of this entire show is listening to Maxton say that part about how, as long as it's the same scale per episode. Good to know. I think I'm going to go first since uh, Trevor got a peek at my attributes and it's not a surprise for him I anymore. I just wrote him right there in the notes. I did do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my scale is going to be uh, worst cakes to best cakes. This is exactly what I was going to do until I looked over at your computer screen <laughs> and saw you looking at the exact same like best kind of cakes right <laughs> listicle that I looked up while trying to put mine together. You better have done a real good job of this. Let's talk about the operatic vocals from Richard Harris. The actor's aplomb that he delivers this with, that's a fruitcake to me. He's kind of a fruitcake of a person, you know? A little bit of a fruity vocal performance. A little bit of a fruity vocal performance. Fruitcake is a legendarily maligned cake. Yeah, I don't uh, like that shit. Is there, if there's anyone in the world who likes fruitcake, Come on the show. Please send us an email to yeah, your taste in cakes. Yeah. I also am going to give the canned string the cake I don't like that some people would assert is the best cake, and I think it's fucking gross. Carrot cake. Carrot cake is okay. Why carrot are you? It's okay. It's vegetables. It's what, all don't, right. don't put vegetables on my cake. Have you had carrot cake? Maybe. Are you just picturing like a yellow cake with some like sliced carrots on it? <sighs> it kind of tastes like cinnamon. <sighs> it's not bad. More things that I could just live without. Yeah. But here we go. Cakes I want to eat. None of these have green icing, but the entire Allegro section. That's a classic yellow cake. Sometimes I just skip to the Allegro section of the song, I'm not gonna lie to you. I just wanna hear that bum 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 But that's why I kinda just go to the Donna Summer version, cause it kinda does that a little better. Finally, we have to give the finest cake out. The concept of breaking radio norms to the point where the Beatles gain inspiration from you? Motherfucker, that's a 10 layer chocolate cake. The apex of cakes, dude. That's like the, the most delicious thing you could possibly eat. The more layers, the better. That's what I say, at least when it comes to cake. So I'm gonna go with uh, my attributes next because you know, on the show, wow, we like okay. to save the guest for last. We like to save the guest for last. I thought you wanted to save the best for last, but I guess it's the same thing. Yeah. So this is a song that we, we've talked right. about how this is kind of a breakup song. It is. This is inspired by Jimmy Webb's breakup. So I decided to do uh, a tribute, my favorite elements of the song, different breakups. Oh a different my one God, of my breakups. I was scared you were gonna to, do this. To my favorite elements of the song. Let's go. So first, the scenario in which a cake that took you a long time to bake, and for which you no longer have the recipe, being ruined after someone carelessly left it out in the rain, I'm gonna give that one uh, my breakup from my long distance girlfriend that I dated throughout my early 20s, who was kind of really the first serious relationship of my life. Because man, 
that's just a real bummer. It would have been just so easy to move that cake inside, you know? Much like it would have been so easy for us to address all the problems that led to that breakup. And what's next? Uh, next, I'm going to give those extremely powerful high notes that Richard Harris hits at the climax of the song. Going down. Yeah, I'm going to give that one my breakup from the daughter of new wave power pop singer Billy Idol. <laughs> Well, I briefly dated... You did do uh, this! Yeah, I, I briefly dated her during the summer of 2019 because thinking about the fact that I briefly dated Billy Idol's daughter amuses me almost as much as thinking about Richard Harris in full Dumbledore regalia melting <laughs> his heart out. And for the last one, I'm going to uh, give the fact that a song as weird and singular as MacArthur Park could be a smash hit for not one, not two, but three separate recording artists. I'm going to give that my absolutely world-shifting breakup from the lesbian couple that I dated when I was first Good. living in L.A. Let's announce that to everybody. Because, <laughs> because not only is the number three significant to both of those uh, scenarios, but also much like that relationship, I imagine I'm going to be pondering and unpacking that fact for a very long time. Along with your entire listening audience. <laughs> yeah, you and the other five people yeah, yeah, listen to this show. You know what they say, bad things come in threes. And now... Yeah. We have saved the guest for last, Father Ickrath, Mr. Peter. What, pray tell, are your attributes? I'm really psyched for this. My uh, scale is based on knights because, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Harris played uh, King Arthur. I'm going from one knight, the least thing, to the, uh, ten knights is the best. Very good. For a song by an actor, I'm giving it ten knights. Very nice. I can think of another song by an actor that's feature episode, too. William Shatner's Tambourine Man? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's why I gave him a 10, because let's face it, other than uh, Donna Summers, he pretty much is probably the best singer on that. I'm also going to give him Nine Nights as a gift to Donna Summers. I think you did mention it was Donna Summers Live and More, mm -hmm. which is a little bit of a cash grab too, because that was probably the only single off of that album. Mm -hmm. The rest of it was a concert. <laughs> and that was a very popular thing to do back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. I think it was from Frampton Comes Alive. Think about how easy and inexpensive it is. You just put out a live album and you make millions of dollars, but you already make money from the concert. So double cash. Oh, for sheer melodrama, I'm going to give that an 8. Great, Richard great. Harris, uh, Tons of melodrama in this A song. lot of melodrama in that would have been better. I think it's a missed opportunity that Michael Caine weren't in there. But... <laughs> I did not realize that he had a feud with Michael Caine. And then finally, I also give it a 10 for its length. One thing you guys didn't mention, uh, DJs love songs like that. A lot of good time to do exactly what I did is go to the bathroom during that. And <laughs> That's my list of attributes. Well done. That was phenomenal, Mr. Peter. Very good. Thank you so much for your attributes. Thank you so much for coming and being no. on the show. Thank you Thanks so much for, for listening me. to the show, supporting your son and me, not your son. Let me uh, give a big shout out to my sister who's also another avid listener renee hello love it hi renee do you want to come on the show email us at onehitwondercast at gmail.com all spelled out or you can add us on twitter where our handle is at onehitwondercast with the numeral one out front the online home for one hit wonders of the world that's owow.link or onehitwondersoftheworld.com if you're not into the whole brevity thing i think that's the richard harris episode guys Thank you so much. This has been a blast. I, I can't wait to do our next episode of the show on... Awesome. Manu de Bongos. Soul Makosas. A song that I've never heard before in my life. Mama say mama say mama maku. What? You'll find out next time on One Hit Wonders of the World. I've been Max and Stenstrom. I've been Trevor Aircraft. Peter Aircraft. And until next time, stay wonderful, folks. Woo!
Yes! This has been a production of The Lighthouse Keepers Company. Culture illuminated. <laughs>